welcome. Okay. Oh. Hey guys. Um, <laughs> uh, so we're back. Um, so we're gonna start with how we start every episode, which is with Song Association. So today we have two special guests. You guys will get to know them soon. Um, but we're gonna start with Song Association. So the way this game works is we pick a word and you have 10 seconds to sing a song with that word in it. Um, so you guys, this will be fun. Y'all's faces are funny. I'm really bad. I lose every episode, so don't worry. She does. Okay. Um, so we're going to start and I'm going to pick Ian because Ian, your birthday was yesterday. So we're going to start with you. Um, your work. I'm going to keep it real easy. Your word is love. You see, you made it so easy. I need to think of, okay, which song with the word love in it can I immediately bring to mind (laughs) most accurately? (laughs) I'm thinking of a Queen song, Somebody to Love, but I'm blanking on exactly the tune of it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. We can, we can, we can. Somebody loves something along those lines. It's been somebody, hard. somebody. <laughs> Is that the one? Somebody to love. Yes. yes. <laughs> that one exactly. Thank you, Miriam. You get double Miriam. points. Hey, Miriam gets double points. Uh, <laughs> you get you get a point for knowing the song. You had the song, and the 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 word was in the title, so you did a great job. You know what? Have- Given how worried I was about that particular part of this, <laughs> I'll take it. Teamwork. You did Teamwork. great. Okay, so Ian, you pick the next person. Well, it doesn't feel right to have Miriam do another one. No, I go, we'll see how it goes. If you feel drawn and feel like you got to call me out, (laughs) try it. (laughs) Okay, Miriam, your word is jazz. Oh, God. That one's really tough. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, I didn't realize that was an easy one in my head. That was okay. I can't even save you because I was like, I could sing a jazz song. I could. (laughs) That works. Wow. This is so innovative. Yeah. You get points for innovation because I feel like this is the most innovative song association we've had. So great job. You guys are doing great. Thank you. Miriam, your turn. Okay. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up this Tisha. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. Water. Oh God. Or H2O. It can be water or H2O if that <laughs> makes it easier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of Water by Kehlani, but because I have performance anxiety, I can't think of how it goes. That's instantly the song I thought of. She'd be like, water, water. <laughs> That's how she sounded in the song. <laughs> oh, you did great, Tisha. Hey, I finally got one. Oh, wow. Proud of you. Thank you. Okay, Bree, let me think. Hair. Don't touch my hair. <laughs> Solange, period. 
Nice. <laughs> I'm a singer. Um, <laughs> points this time. Yay! Yay! Everybody got points. Woo! We did great. So in this episode, we're also going to highlight Black excellence. For this, we are going to pay homage to our good sis, Cicely Tyson. Was it last week that she passed? Last week, yeah. Mm-hmm. January twenty eighth. We lost a good one. She was married to Miles Davis. That's what I said. What? Yes. What a, a legend. Queen. A queen. A literal queen. The Miles Davis. I'm shocked. She's a bad. Period. TCH. And she died in the Netherlands. Period. Period. She died in the Netherlands. What a what great a, place. What a bad. You know what the other word is. Crazy. Wow. We're paying respects to her. We lost a legend. That was a good one. Everybody was really upset about that one. Really shook us to our core. The first Black recurring character on TV. The queen. Wow. We love her. Wow, D. Miles Davis. That's crazy. <laughs> we didn't even introduce you before we started Song Association. We didn't. We have with us the wonderful Miriam and Ian. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Our, what, are, what do we say? Cohort mate? That doesn't sound correct. I they are our friends, but also we'll just say friends. And we're in cohort, the same cohort. Mm-hmm. You know, like the grad school thing when you introduce yourself and talk about your interests? Do we do that here? <laughs> Yes, sure. Okay. I help contextualize what we have to say a little bit. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, you can say where you're from. I don't know. Just say whatever you want the people to know. I'm Miriam. Like they said, I'm a cohort mate, second year in the clinical program at UGA. And I work with Ann Schaefer in the Fresh Lab. Um, and so I research parenting and emotional development and just gonna broadly how families adapt to stress. And I was born and raised in Fort Michigan, but also lived in Cleveland, Ohio for a good part of my life. So this is my first time living down South. Welcome to the South, Miriam, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here, happy to be here today too for the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> she said I'm here. <laughs> it's been a week, so we're here, we're making it. <laughs> I'm Ian. I'm also in the same cohort, another second year in the clinical psych program. Uh, I work with Gregory Strauss, and our lab focuses on severe mental illness, which includes schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, things along those lines. And a lot of our research focuses on how people with these disorders experience and manage their emotions in daily life. So we do some stuff with people coming into the lab, but we also like use smartphones to track people's mood throughout the week, which gives us a lot of really cool stuff to work with. Um, I grew up outside of the DC area, did my undergrad all the way up north of the wall in Maine for two years, and then came down from Maine basically straight to Georgia, uh, where I've been since 2017. For the listeners, I am a cis white man, just to help kind of contextualize my approach to what we're talking about today. 
period. I want to say we have the nicest, smartest, best people in our cohort. I think we have a really good cohort. And sometimes people don't like everybody in our cohort, but I think we're lucky to have that. I agree. We have a great cohort. Mm -hmm. 10 out of 10 recommend. Period. You guys have met Miriam and Ian. Um, so this is another great episode of Black and Empowered. Um, so with this episode, we're discussing how to be a better ally. So we know that there are a lot of people who are passionate about making a positive and impactful social change, but may not know what they can do to make those changes. Um, and so we also know that some of our listeners are wondering how they can use their privilege um, and their social positioning to help fight for social justice, um, racial injustices, um, and against like anti-Black racism. So here we are today talking to you guys about what things the public can do um, to use their voices for social movements um, and also just kind of understanding Ian and Miriam's experiences and what they've done um, because they're great allies. Um, so we wanted to hear from them. Ian and Miriam have both been really great about um, making space for like marginalized people, students and centering their voices. So how, basically like what's a good place to start for if you want to be an ally. So what would you recommend like people do? I think there's like a lot of ways to approach it. And so I guess I'll just give my perspective of like what that kind of looked like for me. And I think part of that was pursuing opportunities to like learn without burdening Black people and other marginalized groups. So like in college, I took courses on juvenile justice and like how racism influences the juvenile justice system and like a civil rights movement class. So like pursuing the opportunities that I have and like the privileges that I have to understand like what that really means for me. And I think through that like education process starts a reflection process of like looking back on your own like life and recontextualizing it like okay how did I get to where I am based on things that I didn't earn like whiteness like that the privilege that goes with that and all those opportunities that are just like carry with that whiteness I would say like it begins with educating yourself and doing that reflection process but that's not enough like that's just the beginning I would say I don't know if Ian, you have another perspective. Yeah, I think that's kind of the biggest part of it in my mind is finding those resources and listening to what people say. And I think the biggest kind of mental shift that I noticed in myself as I became better at being an ally is shifting from you have to have racist thoughts to do racist things and recognizing that you can do racist and awful things even if your intentions are good. Even if, especially if you aren't thinking about race. So like being racially blind in liberal air quotes, for those of you who can't see it, um, isn't helpful. And in fact, helps perpetuate a lot of these systems. So I think, knowing what those systems are, educating yourself about them, the way that they've impacted people. And 
acquainting yourself with the grotesque tapestry of discrimination that this country has built up. So including racism, including sexism, homophobia, transphobia, colonialism, and capitalism. It's a whole set of things that intersect in increasingly distressing ways. And I think you guys highlight a great point in that it was your own effort. So it wasn't necessarily you asking somebody else to give you the resources or for you looking to somebody else to give you that knowledge. You sought it out yourselves and you found out ways to integrate it into your lives and how you showed up in in public spaces or in private. And I think that's important to note is like, it's not about looking to other marginalized groups to help you understand the situation. Like you have a responsibility, just like we have a responsibility. Everyone has a responsibility to do their own homework. So I appreciate you guys acknowledging that like, it took you doing your own homework and figuring out, okay, these are the things that are happening. Where do I sit within these systems? And how can I use that knowledge now that I have it to better inform how I show up for people in these spaces and the things that I do moving forward. And so that kind of brings me to the question of what does being an ally mean to you guys? I think that's a really interesting question because a lot of times people think of ally as like a binary, you are or you aren't an ally. When I think it's a lot more, at least the way I tend to think of it is as a value and a course or direction of action where are you acting like an ally? Are you doing the things that help center the voices and needs of people where, who are disadvantaged by these systems of power? You know, wherever you might be, are you helping those who are oppressed by them? And recognizing how they overlap, intersect, and where you are in there and how you can help the groups you can. Yeah, I was gonna say something similar of like it being more of a process. Like I think about how we're trained clinically in, in cultural competence. Like it's not something you just have, like I'm an ally now and everything's great. It's this constant process where you're questioning yourself, you're questioning others and challenging yourself and challenging others to be anti-racist in professional things and personal things. And I think a part of that is like making an effort to support and amplify voices of people who don't have the privilege I have as a white woman. And part of that is, like I said, it's that process of like constantly trying and, and trying to be better because there's not an end goal where it's like, I've done it. I am. <laughs> do y'all notice that you do like therapist stuff like outside of therapy contest? Because I was about to reflect back to y'all and I don't need to do that. You know what you said. Um, <laughs> I was about to do it, but I was thinking about y'all's point. So then I was thinking about what advice would you give to like grad students or not even grad students, students in general, or, like people our age who want to incorporate like their allyship into like their work what like advice would you give for people who want to do that can I ask a question about the question do you mean in terms of like research or just 
Yeah, so I probably should have kept it at like, what advice would you give to someone who like wants to find their place in being like an active ally and like incorporating that like into their line of work or like what can you do through your work or your research to be an ally, like those kind of questions. I think research and then also just classroom settings. So mm -hmm. even in like school settings, cause I can not to, you know, answer for you guys, but I can say like in classroom settings, you guys mm -hmm. definitely show up as allies and make space, especially for Letitia and I, y'all definitely make space for us and uses, use you guys as space um, that you have for us. So I think across the board, like classroom research, really in the academic space in general. I can like talk a little bit about the research stuff because one of the things is I see my work as a researcher as like one of the ways I fight for social justice in understanding unique experiences of families from lots of different backgrounds. And I think we've talked about this in class sometimes is like this idea of not looking at different populations as if they're this monolith, you know, oh, well, I compared uh, black families to white families and blah, 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 like not doing things like that, where you're just making these big assumptions, um, but really trying to understand the context behind whatever conclusions you're making and, um, and also making sure you're measuring things in a way that's actually going to be fair and like understanding that a lot of our measures are biased and developed with white populations. So being aware of those things um, while you're doing research is something that I strive to do and, you know, doing, doing the research on what measures are appropriate and um, having those discussions with lab mates too about like, what are the issues within our own work that we can, we can better and we can try to work to making things more equitable and and actually like fight for an underlying outcome that's gonna benefit people who don't have privileges like like I do. And but along with that is also like consulting with people who are actually from communities we're we're studying and um, not being this like ivory tower, like I'm in academia, so I'm gonna study this and trying to engage with the community and understand where where the participants are actually coming from. I think is one way to integrate some of this stuff in your work, but that's kind of a bit, that's a lot of big things. Probably need a lot of a mentorship to, to learn how to do. I know I do. I know I need mentorship for that. <laughs> yeah, I really, I'm really grateful for hearing kind of your approach to that, Miriam, because I've, I've been having a hard time deciding how do I approach social justice issues in my work? <laughs> is my main areas of interest are in emotions and emotion regulation, which I see where I could take those to address social justice issues. I just, with the data we have, I haven't been able to go in that direction yet. So a lot of times that shows up in more of like the interviewing I do for our research and being aware of like, if I, as a white person, ask a black participant about, do you feel like people are out to hurt you? Which is one of the standard interview questions I have to go through. I need to be aware of if they say, for example, the police, I need to be very careful 
about how I follow up on that so I'm not stigmatizing or pathologizing an adaptive response. You know, I don't want to say, oh, no, you shouldn't be afraid. Oh, that's, that's probably kept them alive. <laughs> also looking for other areas where my interviewing and work can be more inclusive, even if my research isn't specifically moving in those directions at this moment. And I think the other part of this was also like in the classroom and making space for people. I think, you know, part of that is over Zoom, it's noting when people are trying to talk <laughs> and when they keep getting talked over or not given that space. But even in person, it's also like just waiting that extra second before you talk, um, especially because I know I have a tendency like right now of talking a bit too much. <laughs> so, you know, that's something to watch for is, okay, do I need to take a second to give other people space? Or can I use my space to point back to what someone else has already said? and credit where your ideas are coming from. Because it's so easy to hear something and like jump on and take it without crediting who said it first. You made like, a, both of y'all made like a thousand <laughs> good points. So one of them, Jesus, I'm doing the therapy thing again. One of the things that I was hearing that you were saying is that it doesn't have to be like huge things. So like they were saying, you can just make space to people or point back to people because a lot of times, or rather to situate this for listeners, a lot of times the work of Black people are stolen, basically. A lot of concepts are taken. So things as simple as like thinking you can share your ideas and talk about like your ideas for research and for papers and measures a lot, a lot of times in academia, Black people or Black students are told not to do that because people will take your stuff and put their name on it. Um, so crediting where things come from is important. And then your point about being thoughtful and how you interview people is important because situate this again. So a lot of literature suggests that Black people are often misdiagnosed and overdiagnosed for schizophrenia because um, so this concept of cultural mistrust, so being that like we don't really like the police and we don't trust doctors, um, like big institutions who have a history of hurting us, um, that can be, if not taken and understood in a thoughtful way and situated within the context of that Black people live, it can cause for harmful diagnoses and a lot of stigma that comes with those diagnoses and just like lack of access to things when you have those diagnoses. So a lot of those are really good points because they just have big impacts on black people. When I tell you guys, these two here literally make so much space for Tisha and I, it's not- And it feels so good. It's so nice. <laughs> like, because it's realizing that a lot of times you have to fight so hard as like a, a black student or like a student of color, a marginalized group, like, in academia, you have to fight so hard. And so in those moments where we're sitting there and we're literally waiting to talk on Zoom and everybody else sees that we're waiting to talk, but they continue to talk. Ian will say, well, Brianna was unmuted. Like, what were you going to say? Or like, if there was one time we had a, a meeting with our whole department and I asked the question, 
nobody answered my question. Ian said, okay, well, let's circle back because nobody <laughs> answered the question. And I said, period. Nobody did. Nobody did answer my question. So I think it's even things like that being thoughtful in how you can utilize the space because it's realizing for us, a lot of times we're overlooked in these spaces. And it's not even because we should be because we're all here. We've made it through the same situations. Like we've all made it to the same space. Um, but systemically and other factors beyond our, beyond us um, play into these situations. And so we have to navigate it. And it makes it a little easier when we're not the only ones having to navigate it or we feel supported while we're trying to navigate this space. Mm-hmm. I think it's nice too to have the both of y'all because I think that your allyship like shows up in different ways. And so I think that's a good point too because I feel like sometimes people think you have to like follow a rule book or something and it's like you just do it where you can and when you can and I think that looks different for both of you but it's still like it still holds the same weight to us Mm -hmm. um and so I think that's just like a good thing for people to know is that get in where you fit in bro you ain't got to be doing all the extra stuff just do it when you can where it's appropriate so have y'all ever faced like challenges against your allyship so like pushback or you're trying to make change and then you're not successful <laughs> or people try to thwart what you're doing. Yeah. Have y'all ever experienced that? And then if you have, how did you manage like those situations? This is totally like something I'm still working on, but there's, you know, sometimes it's intimidating to call out racism because there's like this fear of, well, you know, I'm just a graduate student. What if I face some sort of repercussions? And I've like definitely had those feelings of like, oh, should I hit send on this email? Should I actually say this out loud? And one of the things I find helpful is like reflecting on that feeling because if I'm feeling this way, how would a person who is black feel? Like they, like they I face less potential repercussions for what I'm about to do and what I'm about to say so kind of like channeling that fear and then also recognizing that part of this is to get an equitable society white people have to let go of some privilege and that might look like you know not everyone's gonna like you because you are in their eyes being annoying or like calling things out that they maybe don't think is real so I think trying to channel that and I'm naturally kind of like a conflict averse person so it's like already naturally like I don't like fighting with people so it's like you know two hurdles to get over I guess because but when, when you reflect on that it's like that sense of intimidation is what gets people to shush up and then racism is perpetuated so like remembering that and um, remembering that the possibility of like losing potential relationships or privileges and it's like facade of professionalism is a real possibility, but it's necessary in this process of fighting for racial justice. I empathize really strongly with that aversion to conflict. And I, in some ways, use that as a way of telling myself when it's most important to have a conflict is the more I want to avoid it, the more important it probably is to have because the more things are going on and involving it. Um, going back to the question of facing repercussions, especially 
when you're working within academia, a lot of the people in charge are like on the liberal end of the spectrum, white men. So the feedback that you can get from them, the critical feedback you can get from them is like, oh, you should have done this differently. You should have said it nicer, or you should have gone through this channel instead of that channel. And recognizing that as tone policing, criticizing the way you conveyed the content instead of the content itself, which also sidesteps the content, <laughs> which is really what's important there. And you know, to help deal with that, it's important to seek out people to support you. Like I'll plug my mentor, Greg Strauss, as having been really good at helping insulate from that negative feedback. Um, he's like conveyed what other people have said, but specifically been supportive of me and Lisa Bartolomeo also in our lab who've been speaking up and doing what we can. And sometimes not necessarily using the tone people would like us to use. And as kind of a final word on that, if you're confronting injustice, anger is a reasonable response. I was about to say, I got triggered a little bit when you said tone policing, because I said, oh, because know that that's happened to me. Okay, and it is so annoying and so stupid. Not because I'm country and not saying, sir and ma'am, I'm rude. What does that even mean? What? Oh, I got triggered because, and then you made a good point about like anger is a reasonable response because I feel like, especially with like the politics of how academia is, people expect you to say stuff a certain way or like sign your emails a certain way. And it's like, I don't need to be nice to you to tell you that what you're doing is problematic. How you feel about that doesn't have anything to do with me. And I think sometimes I feel, I go back and forth because sometimes I feel like people are afraid to like be upfront about things like that or speak out about things like that because like, obviously like we're still students, this is still like very important. You can get a lot of lash, like backlash but on the other hand I feel like if I'm not doing that then what am I doing here like I feel like some things are more important but then I also go back and forth about that being a privileged thing to think about in general and so I don't know if y'all think about that but I think about that all the time because usually I'm the one who's like you should stop doing that but then I'm like oh my god it's risky I don't know I go back and forth about that all the time and I think that in itself just highlights like our intersectional identities in a way and like realizing that we have, we hold so many roles and so many identities. And I think trying to navigate that while also trying to like create a space for people who come in after us. And so realizing that if we don't say anything then we're just continuing a cycle um, and then people who come in after us are gonna have to deal with that same cycle. And they're gonna say, well, the people before us didn't say anything, so we can't say anything. And so it it becomes a thing. And so we have to, at some point, somebody has to be the person to be like, okay, enough is enough. Like we're not, we're not gonna keep doing this. We're not gonna keep minimizing black students' voices. We're not gonna keep minimizing their experiences. We're not gonna sit here and call them by different names. Like we're gonna, actually be intentional about what we're doing 
and realizing that it sets the tone. And so like, even when we were interviewing, you know, students were asking us like, what is it like to be a black student at a PWI or like be a black student here and realizing that in certain ways it is more difficult. And so when we have people who can speak up and acknowledge the wrongdoings and not it always being us, it helps in certain ways. Like it can make our experience a little lighter than what it usually is because we're not having to fight every single battle by ourselves every time something happens. Miriam, were you gonna say something? I was gonna just kind of echo your like thought about, you know, is this like fight fighting and like fearing for not fighting, I guess like calling out injustice and fearing repercussions. And I know I've had these thoughts of like what at what point do we just burn everything down? And okay. and like how, what is salvageable and like really questioning like should I still be operating in this system that is so flawed but then I I find what like brings me back to it is talking with y'all and like we all hype each other up and we're like we got to change this we got to do something like I don't know just like having that support within our peer group and being able to talk about these things and and like have that collective action just makes it so much Mm-hmm. easier to to keep going and not feel like everything should be burned down I mean there's it's maybe maybe some stuff should be burned down but mm-hmm. maybe not everything I don't know <laughs> I've heard a lot of really good kind of criticism of academia by academics and a lot of it is focused on if the only people in the institution are those who don't want to burn at all it will never change mm-hmm. and Speaking of crediting, uh, that's Dr. Hannah McGregor, who's a publishing professor at Simon Fraser University in Canada, British Columbia. Citation. Period. <laughs> you all mind if I say something quickly about tone policing before it leaves my head? Of course. Just, it's something that I've been caught doing before, and so it's something I've thought a lot about, and I want to draw kind of a nuance in it because there's a very strong strategic argument for presenting objections calmly. That is a strategic argument. And I think it has merit in that as there's a common phrase of like, you catch more bees with honey than vinegar. Yes, you can tell I learned, I did my thinking about this in the South. So there is that argument, and I think it is reasonable, especially if you are working from a position where you have the privilege and power where you can react calmly. Great, take that strategic option. But also don't look down on and don't tell people, no, you have to respond calmly. That's where I want to draw attention to the strategic argument of it can be more effective but also not engaging in tone policing by criticizing the delivery instead of the argument. No, I think that's a really good point. And I think it points to the fact that like people's activism, it can look how you want it to look. And I like that about tone policing because like for me, like I don't, we know this, I don't really ascribe to like professionalism because I just think it's ridiculous. And so I'm not going to do it. And so 
that's like caused issues with how how people have perceived me because like I joke around and I've always been honest about I'm just pretty much open about everything so we'll always be open about like how I'm feeling and what my medication's been doing lately and crying and all this other stuff because like I'm a human being but that's my activism because that's what works for me and but like at the end of the day the work is still on point honey so what is there to say you know I feel like that's a really good point so you can it can look how you want it to look. If you want to get mad and tell people about themselves, then do it because it's valid. If you want to draft a response letter, <laughs> then do that because it's valid. So I like that point a lot. I'm glad you said that. For context for the listeners, there have been several response letters and Miriam gestured with her hands easily two feet apart. what? Yes, several emails that are probably like five inches long if you were to print them out. Like, that's how I, that's part of my activism. Long emails. And so I think you guys have definitely given us great insight into like your experiences and like the different things that come up with being an ally. And so one of the things I want to know or that we should know as listeners and viewers how did you guys kind of learn to be an ally? Did you read books? Was it like in your upbringing? Kind of how did it become important to you? Because I know some people are learning now and so they are trying to figure it out. And I think with you guys being in our cohort and stuff, I think at some point you learned it. And so I guess we want to know like, when did you learn it? How did you learn it? That type of thing. Be like, the principles I, I don't know what you would call it of being an ally wasn't a central part of my upbringing and I do I was quite ignorant about what being white meant and what my privileges were but reflecting on that ignorance and understanding the wrongs that I've done in the past has been a major part of like shifting and trying to be an ally so understanding like like for example, so I, I mentioned I grew up in Fort Michigan and at one point our fam- my family was able to move out of Fort Michigan because my dad lost his job and we had family in another place. And just like reflecting on things like that was like I had the resources to move away from an area that was then like so much violence has occurred there with the Flint water crisis and like reflecting on things like that and seeing like the violence that happens to people while I kind of skate by kind of like ignited a rage in me and like a lot of discomfort and and kind of seeing that as a just like the start of like I said before getting more resources and learning more and like reading a bunch of books I'd recommend Me and White Supremacy by Layla Saad and like going through those internal things and then shifting into actual like behaviors and changing your behaviors, doing things like listening to the voices around you that are black and seeing where you can support them rather than like leading the charge on your own because you're not gonna be able to, you don't like as a white person will never understand. So I think that's kind of, I don't know, does that answer the question? Yeah, I think it does. I was, I was gonna say, I was shocked because I, well, y'all don't know Miriam. Miriam is one of the most thoughtful, kind people that I have literally ever met in my entire life. So it is so shocking to me that you, 
I mean, I guess it shouldn't be shocking, but it is. It's so shocking to me that like you had to do work on your own and there were things that you didn't recognize. And I think that's a good example because I think if people think like, I'm not actively, and Ian, you said this earlier, like I'm not actively harming people, but like if you're not being thoughtful and inclusive, you are because you're being dismissive and that is harmful. So I really like that. And I also like, like from both of y'all just being honest about like, oh, like sometimes I didn't get it right, but then I fixed it. That's literally all you have to do. You do not have to make it this big thing with all these tears. Don't really want to see that. Just like fix it, read a book. Like she said, if you can't read, listen to a podcast. I mean, watch a movie, watch a YouTube video, yeah. watch a movie. like, come on, come on. <laughs> and I think one of the major things is like, just being intentional, like, it's all about being intentional in what you do and realizing, like you said, like, okay, I knew I may not have gotten that like in my upbringing, but now that I'm, you know, learning and growing as an adult, okay, I can make decisions for myself. So let me intentionally make decisions and do things that are furthering the agenda, you know, like furthering whatever cause, whatever values, whatever goals I have for myself and others. Be intentional, y'all, stop being weird. <laughs> read a book watch a movie talk to people and there's so many things like online too like even just google how to not be racist and there's guides made for you <laughs> so use them there's no shame in doing that like using other resources people have put together that's what I did <laughs> and that was a lot of my journey too of so over the last like 15 years I've been working really hard because I used to be, and I'm looking back, explicitly racist. I recognize that as part of my history. And a lot of what prompted me to do the work was recognizing that my values of treating people equitably, that actually used to be treating people equally, but I've shifted that language over time. <laughs> was out of line with the attitudes I had and the information I was receiving. So it really kind of came through two roots, one of information, one of like reading life. So like the information of, for example, men talk more in meetings than women informs a simple step of allyship of if you're, if you are a masculine presenting person, being aware of how much you're talking. And that was also informed by like how disproportionately people of color are treated by police and gaining those facts to say, oh no, there are systems of racism. And also reading life in terms of seeing how these things play out and where they come from. So a lot of my thinking has come from actually feminist criticisms of pop culture. <laughs> I, one of my favorite podcasts is called Witch Please, free plug for them, <laughs> which is a feminist reading by two scholars of Harry Potter, which also means it's a great chance to deal with the anti-Semitism inherent in that property, the transphobia inherent in that property because of the author. And that has opened me up to so many other criticisms that have really helped me think about deeply and see how these systems of power over 
overlap, how they intersect, and how they maintain white supremacy. And thinking about, okay, those are the facts, that's how you see it, how can you dismantle it? Burning it down where appropriate, deconstructing it slowly where needed. <laughs> so I think you guys, <laughs> um, for of course being great special guests, definitely giving the people something to, something, woo chow, tired. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> giving the people something to think about, but also charging the people to do better. Um, and I think that that's essentially what we're doing here is like, it's not an easy journey and it's not a perfect journey, but it should be a journey that you're taking. So do better, be intentional. So before we kind of sign off, Dr. Metzger. Hi, mommy. <laughs> wanted us to share with you, our audience, some resources and things that you can read, watch, um, listen to if you're interested in becoming a better ally. Some books, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. Let's see, Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. We need co-conspirators, not allies. Mm-hmm. The Guardian, that's probably a good one. Mm-hmm. You can um, watch 13th is a good one to watch. When They See Us Just is a good mercy. one to watch. Just Mercy's a crier now. Yeah, just mercy. All, honestly, all if you don't cry, I think you're crazy because all of these are make you cry. Oh look, listen. If you can't read, you can listen to 1619 by the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Let's see, White Homework by Tori Williams Douglas. Mm-hmm. White Rage and the Pattern of Punishing Blacks by Carol Anderson. And Carol Anderson also has a book called White Rage, so read that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you honestly to be you quite can probably check it out the library we like accessibility I bet these are at the library you know what you can probably google them and find the pdf there's a lot of pdfs yeah. out there these days and I was gonna say to be quite frank you don't have an excuse at this point because there are so many resources everything is literally online right now so get out read a book Thank you, guys. We're so appreciative. Wow, we really have the best cohort ever. I'm sorry to everybody else that's not in our cohort. Um, (laughs) Before we sign off, is there anything that you guys, why am I saying you guys? That's not even my dialect. Is there anything that y'all want to share with the audience? Any like last tips or thoughts or what you have for breakfast today anything i don't have anything specific just thanks for having us this is fun nice to chat this has been a lot of fun i do have one like final thought of like i think brianna you touched on this too like you're gonna get it wrong if you're an ally you are inevitably going to make mistakes they might be big ones they might be small ones they might just be well you might could have phrased that a little better but you're going to make mistakes and that happens. And when it does, do your best to catch it and correct it yourself and not rely on the people of color, the LGBTQ people, the people around you with less power or privilege to fix you. <laughs> They're already doing enough labor just existing in society. <laughs> you know what? That's a good end note. That was a nice wrap up. Thanks, friends. Love you. Drink your water. Eat three meals if you can.
Okay, bye. <laughs> bye.